Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So there's one thing we are all thinking about right now, which is how do you have the most meaningful, the most impactful, the most joyful Passover experience ever? Is it about the cleaning? Is it about how much time you spend scrubbing and organizing and reorganizing and vacuuming and koshering? The intention you put into it. Is it about the Seder? About picking just the right Haggadah and planning the right discussion topics, using the right books, getting the right people around the table? I have a story for you. In the spring of 2014, I was in my second year of rabbinical school at Hebrew College, and I got this bizarre gig as a cruise ship rabbi <laughs> on a passage from Tokyo, Japan to Alaska. And as a second-year rabbinical student, no one had ever called me rabbi before. This was going to be the first time. And I was so nervous. And I spent months prepping. I mean, I read every book I could find. I tried to learn all the halakha. I was trying to study the Haggadah. I was like, sure, like I had to have every answer, because what if you get on board and somebody asks you a question, you're just like, um, I'm just a second-year? That wasn't going to go over. So I stressed and I planned, and I had like backup plan after backup plan after backup plan. I was ready to go, and I had dreamed of the perfect Seder, and I'm someone who believes in visualization, so I had visualized the ideal Seder. So I arrived at the ship on the afternoon of the first night of Passover. And when I got on board, they told me to go check in at the entertainment office. So I went to the entertainment office and I knocked on the door. They opened it and I said, hi, I'm the cruise ship rabbi. And the entire office swiveled around in their chairs and they all looked at me with total shock and incredulity. And as one, they all went, don't you need a, uh, don't you, don't you, as if the shock of seeing a young woman when they expected to see an orthodox man had rendered them mute. <laughs> so we got through that. I put my stuff in my stateroom. About an hour before the Seder was set to begin, they brought me up to the Seder function room. Unlike the space of my dreams, this was not a serene, beautiful, calm reception area. Instead, it was 10 tables sandwiched between the outdoor pool, the indoor bar, and the casino. <laughs> so as I'm standing there, the waiters are like bringing out the, the cutlery and the plates and everything, and there are women in bikinis streaming by, dripping chlorinated water on the floor, asking for like cocktails at the bar, and the bartenders are shaking the cocktails, and their parents dragging screaming children away from the pool. No, we have to go to dinner. And then the casino doors are whooshing open, whoosh, and whooshing clothes, whoosh, 
And with every whoosh of the door, you get plumes of smoke and this cacophonic electronic So I asked if maybe there was a different space we could use. No. This was the space for the Seder, and it had already been publicized, and don't worry, we do the Seder here every year. Okay, the crew assured me that they would close the bar when we started the Seder, and it would be, no, people wouldn't really be coming through anyway. So okay, I decide to control what I can control. I start looking at the tables, and I notice that they have very traditional Seder plates. And I say, you know, can you just bring me an orange for every Seder plate? I'm so excited to introduce Jews from all over the world to this progressive tradition of putting an orange on the Seder plate in honor of feminism and as a stand against homophobia. Sure, the crew's happy to comply. They go get oranges. We're all set. So the Seder begins. People come in. And uh, turns out that the boat was scheduled to leave dock exactly as the Seder was starting. And at first, there was like barely any perceptible movement. And things are going great. We're reading, you know, the first paragraphs. Everyone's participating. And then the boat starts to rock. And then it starts to rock more. And I'm standing there, and I realize to my great dismay that I get seasick. <laughs> and I didn't know that about myself. So I'm like leaning against the wall of this function room, clinging to the molding praying to God that I don't lose my cookies in the middle of the Seder. Please save me. And then the rocking becomes more intense, and the oranges start to travel. <laughs> and they're going down and down and down, and they're taking down glasses and dumping wine. And people are shrieking, stop, why did you do that? Who put oranges on the Seder plate? Oranges don't belong on the Seder plate. I didn't do it, Mom, I swear, it was the orange. It didn't seem like a good time to mention that the oranges were a, a statement of feminism or against homophobia. I just kind of stood back against my wall and watched the destruction. And then we made it to the soup course. Uh, the crew, they had study guides, they were prepared, and they really put a lot of energy and attention into planning every phase of the Seder. And they were thrilled and excited to serve what they thought was a authentic soup course. And I remember that people had come to the Seder, there were guests from all over the world, and they had sort of grouped themselves according to countries of origin. So there was a Spanish table, and there was a Polish table, and there was an Australian table, and the Americans and Canadians kind of shared a table, and Germans, and everybody was all there in their own tables. And nearest to me was this table of English Jews. So they serve the soup, and I'll never forget, there was this woman sitting like right in front of me, and she takes, she had such good manners. She takes her spoon, and her pinky's raised, and she takes a sip, and just right, and sips it. And she says, oh no, this is just not right. This is just not right. Come to find out, instead of matzo ball soup, they had served gefilte fish ball soup.
how. <laughs> Somehow the Seder went downhill from there. The next morning I woke up. You know when you wake up from like a really bad experience and you have this realization that it wasn't a dream? That it actually happened? Like all those months of preparation, you flunked still. And I'm in like this tiny state room. I have to go to breakfast. And I'm dreading breakfast. Like I don't want to show my face. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just thinking like I'm a failure. Like if you can't lead a satyr on a cruise ship, how are you ever going to be a rabbi? So I go to breakfast, and I'm like keeping my eyes down. I get my food, I go to my table, I'm like not making eye contact with anyone. And someone comes up to my table, it's a cruise ship director, and they say, um, Rabbi, there's someone here that wants to meet you. I'm like, no. <laughs> this is not going to be good. So I turn to look at this, and there are two people, a man and a woman, and they share with me that um, they are members of a group from Germany. And the man explains that the woman really wants to meet me, but she doesn't speak any English. And the woman says, Rabbi, and then bursts into tears. And then she switches into German, and through this man who's translating for her, she explains that she just wanted to meet me because she wanted to apologize for what her people did to my people during the Holocaust. And she says, so sorry, so sorry, so sorry, over and over again. And for the rest of those 20 days on that boat, Germans from that delegation came up to me every day to ask me questions about Judaism, about my family, to tell me about what their family was doing during the war, and to apologize over and over again. I met this guy from Ireland who we were sitting on this trolley on an excursion and he was telling me about what it was like for him to grow up in Ireland, about stepping over dead bodies on his way to school, about the kind of violence that religion can cause. He told me that at first he, he didn't want to have anything to do with religion. But as he grew to become an adult, he discovered there was a way to have a kind of spirituality that was supportive and loving and good about how he had built his faith from the ground up. And there was someone else, this other guy, a dad who was a recovering alcoholic. He was my lunch buddy. He used to find me every day. And he told me his story. He said that Judaism saved him. In the depths of his alcoholism, he discovered Kabbalah, you know, the red ribbon Madonna kind of Kabbalah, and that saved him. And he wanted to know from me if I would help him design his Jewish tattoo. And he said, Rabbi, I just, I have this vision. I want to have a tattoo that says in Hebrew, I am. And I tried to explain you can't really, in Hebrew, you can't really just have a tattoo that says, I am. You could have a tattoo that says, I. You could have a tattoo that says, I am hungry, I am tired, I am going. Like, I am doesn't really exist. I learned from all of these stories and from my experience on this boat 
that Passover is much more than those seders. It's much more than what happens at night. It's actually a seven to eight day holiday for a reason. Every Passover, we are instructed to see ourselves as if we had come out from Egypt. But the truth is, it's not enough to see ourselves as if we came out from Egypt at the Seders. The real work of Passover is to uncover the small moments of liberation that happen for us each and every day. The as if we came out from Egypt, every moment of liberation in our lives is as if that was the moment at Egypt. And we have to tell those stories with as much pride and as much respect and as much honor as we do the Passover story. You guys are all here from school, right? I'm looking at the reality and the Schechter and the Rashi and everybody here from school. It's so important to hear stories of other people who've been through similar, like when you have somebody, when you have a, a difficulty on a test, and you hear somebody else had a difficulty, but they still got a good grade, or somebody else was bullied, but they still got through it, or they, somebody else had a difficult time in school, they still got through it, we need to hear those stories. Those stories matter because we want to know you can get out of Egypt. If you're somebody who's lonely, who's yearning for a partner, you want to hear stories of liberation, you want to hear stories of people that went on a zillion bad dates and had a, a, like improbable longing and desperately yearned and then all of a sudden their partner came along. We want to know that liberation is possible, that you can get out of Egypt. If you're someone who's dealing with infertility, you want to hear stories of people who dealt with infertility. You want to hear about their travails, their losses, when they got stuck in narrow places because you want to know it's possible to get out of Mitzrayim. The list goes on. If you're sick, you want to hear a story of someone who had the same diagnosis and got better because you want to know it's possible to get out of Mitzrayim. If you're depressed, you want to hear a story of someone who was equally depressed and who got through and who made it through and how they made it through because you want to know it's possible to get out of Mitzrayim. If you're mourning, you want to hear stories of someone else whose heart was broken, who was in the depths of grief and who made it through to a place where that heartbreak was less acute, where they were able to go on. You want to know that it's possible to get out from Mitzrayim. The truth is our liberation stories are too important to wait for Passover. That's why the daily liturgy has us reciting the song of the sea every single day. That's why every single morning we start our days with the story of how we got out of Egypt. It's a reminder. Don't wait for Passover to tell your story. Share it every day. The little moments of liberation that make it possible to remember that no matter what's going on, no matter how difficult things are, it's possible to get out of Egypt. We will make it through. Which brings me back to that terrible Seder on the boat. It seemed like it was gonna go on forever. I have never in my life been more grateful for the final song of the Seder. We finally got there. I didn't throw up on anyone. We were ready to finish the night. 
I turned to the Indonesian and Filipino crew members who'd been with me the whole time to say thank you. And notice that one of them, this very, very tall Indonesian man, he was a motorcycle rider with these big muscles and so tall, was standing there with tears in his eyes. I was super shocked. I was like, why are you crying? He turned to me and said, your story, it's just, it's just so awesome just hearing what happened to your people and that you made it through, it, it gives me hope. As you get ready for Passover this year, I want to invite you to think not just about the exodus happened then, but about your own story or stories of liberation. When we get to the Seder table, let's not just share what happened then. Let's share also what's happening now. And let's remind each other that the potential of our future is greater than we could ever imagine.